Welcome to Shelter in Place, a podcast about finding daily sanity in a world that feels increasingly insane. Coming to you from Oakland, California, I'm Laura Joyce Davis. I would lie down at night and there would be that sound of the subway going on at night. And I know that the subway is emptied. And I would start imagining that there was somebody who sat next to me who's dead now. Someone who I'd smiled at, someone I rubbed shoulders with or put their bag on me by mistake is no longer alive. And I just couldn't get that out of my head. Like these ghosts on the subway, one by one just disappearing. And that's what I'm grieving. Every New Yorker, I think, is grieving in some manner because we've lost so much. Today begins a new series on Shelter in Place with the 13 incredible authors of Fierce, an anthology of essays by and about dauntless women. You'll hear from all of the authors on this week's story Saturday, but my conversations with these women were so riveting and wonderful that I'm sharing a few of them in more depth this week. Today, I'd like to introduce you to a celebrated author who wrote the first story in the collection. My name is Meera Nair. I was born in India and I came to the U.S. in 1997 for grad school. And I'm a writer and an activist. And I'm the author of a book of short stories called Video, published by Pantheon. And I've also written two children's books, which were published in India. Mira's writing has been featured on NPR's Selected Shorts and published in the Washington Post, the New York Times, Guernica, and elsewhere. She's been awarded fellowships from the New York Times, the New York Foundation for the Arts, the McDowell Artist Colony, and the Queen's Council for the Arts. Her first book video won the Asian American Literary Award, was a Washington Post Best Book of the Year, and the Editor's Choice at the San Francisco Chronicle. And that's just the highlight reel. Over the past few months, Mira has seen COVID-19 change her city dramatically. I live in Jackson Heights in Queens in New York, and it's a neighborhood that has been called the epicenter of the epicenter, the place that had the highest number of deaths in the entire country. For days and days, all I heard was the wailing of ambulances. I mean, day and night, and I literally would not sleep through the night because I lived very close to Elmhurst Hospital, which was on the news as one of these hospitals that takes care of immigrants, people who don't have insurance and, you know, are undocumented. All the suffering of the world coming together in one locus. It's a very interesting neighborhood. It's incredibly diverse. There's these grand old buildings from the 1930s, like the one I live in, which houses people who are in the media or are professors. But it also has a lot of people who are like the backbone of New York. Suddenly, they started calling them essential workers. Until then, you know, they were all vilified. But they are the hotel workers and people who drive cabs. And so it's really interesting mixed neighborhood. But because of the way the pandemic payments came in, a lot of immigrants didn't apply or couldn't get it. And so these are people who had jobs who now don't have a way to make a living and are basically starving. And so we had these long lines of people for 20 blocks, 30 blocks. You saw people just waiting for food and for the food distribution networks. And so we were all contributing to the networks and, you know, doing all the mutual aid stuff. And for me, that was the hardest part, watching the city fall apart, watching the city empty out, you know, looking at these pictures of this city that I love so much. I could not live in another place in the world. No other place gives me what New York gives me. 
but then to see all the roads empty, all that life and vibrancy and color and craziness leached out 20,000 people. Just to think of all these people that are no longer with us, that's really been the worst, just coming to terms with a depleted city. This time of sheltering in place has been intense for everyone in New York, but Mira saw the casualties of COVID-19 up close even before the death toll climbed in her city. I work in nonprofit with the Asian American Federation, and I just love that job. But, you know, it's been a really crazy time for activists. It's been a very, very busy three months. We do a lot of immigration work. I do a lot of anti-hate work. After COVID happened, there were like 100 incidents of hate a day against Asians. And so far, since March, I think they've recorded something like 1,800 instances of anti-Asian hate. It's incredibly depressing, the constant shootings and the killings and the hateful rhetoric that was coming from all quarters. I feel overwhelmed by the news and what you see and the hatred and the constant attacks against immigrants. I'm an immigrant. I came here in 1997 and I became a citizen. So I chose this country. So I have like this fierce love for it, which is I don't take it for granted. I chose this. Like you can't choose your parents or you can choose anything, but I chose a country to live in. So I felt so betrayed by what is going on. I felt like, who are you? You know, like, who is America? And how could I have been so wrong? And especially for someone like me who works in social justice, you know, it just feels like what happened to my country? It's that growing realization that there is this strain and this racism and all these things that it's not this shining city on the hill. How do we even begin to heal? How do we as a country move forward if we can't see each other for who we are and not for who we want people to be? I wish people would see people for who they are rather than what they look like or where they come from. But we have to learn to stop spiraling into some wretched dream of a past and think, how do we live in this world that we have right now? Why do you keep longing for a world that isn't there? or a past that never was so great. What is this idea that, oh yeah, we were great and now we want to be great again. We were never great. We, we can be great. And so let's do that. You know, let's work towards that. I could say that about most countries really, <laughs> but I wish people would just wake up. I kind of feel like at this point, we have been stripped to the bone right now. We have no illusions left. Like there's nowhere to go. There's no dream left. And that's a good thing because we can now go forward and build from rock bottom. I think George Floyd was like the ultimate awaken to reality moment for all of us. We realized there is a cancer and now we can go ahead and heal. Mira loves this country so much that she's willing to look unflinchingly at the things that we need to change. I hope that Mira's right that maybe we're finally being stripped down so we can rebuild a more just and equitable country. Maybe this is what we needed all along. I'm hopeful. The protests have made me so hopeful, <laughs> which is so funny because, you know, I was so afraid to go out. But the moment they started, I was like, I don't care. I'm putting on my mask and I'm out there in the streets. And it was just incredible, the feeling of marching and being with other people and finally seeing 
oh my God, New York is not dead. It's there still. These people are all out there protesting. People of every hue and everyone marching and being really happy. And it felt like community was given back to me. And that was what I was missing so much. Because we live our lives outside. Like New Yorkers, we just like forever with people. And so I've been going to every single protest that there is. Like literally, I've been to five protests so far. But mostly in Queens because I'm still afraid to take the subway. But it's been wonderful. Also, my daughter is 19 and she and her friends are out there. These young people, they're kind of amazing. Being such warriors, they're so peaceful and so joyous and so righteous. There is such a radical joy of, yes, this is America and this is what we do. We protest injustice and we try to take our country back from these people. That has given me a lot of hope at this moment. I'm not surprised to hear that Mira's daughter is joining the protests. Mira has been modeling advocacy for years. She helps run a reading series in Queens, something that she started with two other women, including Nancy Agabian, one of the other writers who contributed to Fierce. We run a reading series called Queens Writers Resist, and uh, we've run it for two, three years now, and we encourage Queens writers to come and read their work, and we also involve a social justice organization to come in and talk about their work, and we ask people to donate to them, and then we have like a writing prompt, and everyone writes in community, and people come up to the mic and, and share their work. And of course, we had to stop everything because of covid But Mira hasn't let that stop her. When we talked, Mira was getting ready to host a Zoom reading featuring Black authors in Queens. It was called Say Their Names, and the event raised money for a local nonprofit that helps Black teenagers to become entrepreneurs. I just felt like we needed to do things that were about Black joy and Black abundance and Black creativity rather than always associate Black people with sorrow and killing and things like that. So that's why I'm really happy that we're doing this. Even as Mira is out there protesting and hosting readings to celebrate Black authors and raise money for social justice organizations, she's also real about how challenging this time has been. Some days, just living feels like a fight. I fight to retain my dreaming I fight to be creative in spite of everything. The only way I can make sense of the world is by writing about it. It's almost like breathing. The only way to understand it is to write. So I'm trying to do that, even though it's been very, very hard to write. You'll hear more from Mira this Saturday. But in the meantime, I asked her to tell us a little bit about the essay that she wrote for Fierce. It's a book filled with stories of women who fought against injustice. Sometimes they risk their lives in that fight. A quick trigger warning that Mira mentions self-harm when she talks about the woman she wrote about. I wrote an essay called Nangeli, Her Defiant Breasts. And it's about a woman in India, in Kerala, which is the state that my family, my ancestors, my grandparents are from who is sort of a revolutionary, even though she's in such a low position in the society of the time. They had what was called a breast tax in that lower caste women in this state were not allowed to cover their breasts. And if they did, a tax would be imposed on them by royal decree. So this story, I came upon it through the BBC or something, and it was so fascinating to me that first of all, that they imposed such taxes and the fact that she 
revolted against this tax and basically cut her breasts off in an act of utter defiance, using her own body as the revolutionary instrument. And that so shocked society at that time that it transformed people's minds and they removed the tax. I was so fascinated by this kind of mythic story of this woman. And the more I researched it, I uncovered so many fascinating facts about how it comes from the Rig Veda, from our Vedic traditions, which are lost in antiquity. I mean, some of these texts were written, I don't know, 10,000 years ago or something. And those ideas of caste that were sort of set in stone that many centuries and millennia ago are still coming back into our lives and continue to persist. And, you know, I sort of started examining my own relationship with caste, my mother's relationship with caste through this story. We, we are upper caste. We lived in this huge old ancestral house and we always had farm workers, all these people coming through all the time. And I was always, you know, completely oblivious to the fact that they sat in the veranda. They wouldn't eat with us. They shared separate plates until I got to become a teenager and started questioning everything and getting really angry about the fact that there was this kind of like subtle, unspoken differences among people. I mean, not so subtle, really. People wouldn't even rock the boat or question or ask, why is it that people are treated like this? Then I saw how that even worked in the cities that I grew up in. You know, India is extremely modern. It has these giant cities. So I felt like I was traveling between the modern and the rituals and prejudices of this traditional, older, slower life of the village. I also saw congruences between racism against Black people in the U.S. and how we behave in India against people who are lower caste, people who are of another religion. So that made me question a lot of the norms and the rituals that we were seeing around us because caste still exists in modern India and continues to seep into society in various ways. And things have changed and things have not changed, which is what is really interesting. I mean, Kerala itself, which is the state I'm from and where the essay is set, has been ruled by the communists because we have a parliamentary system in India and there are different kinds of governments in different states. Kerala has had a communist government forever. And so with them, it's like they erase all difference. There is no religion, all this stuff. But even though the government tries to perpetuate all these lofty ideals, still caste has persisted. And we have a right-wing government that has been in power now for eight years. And that has meant that lower castes have been tortured. You know, the underbelly is exposed, just like here in this country, where everyone feels a sense of freedom to say whatever they want and do whatever they want, which would otherwise have been hidden. And so there has been amazing amounts of acts of violence against the lower caste people. And I actually quote in my piece this horrific act of violence against lower castes in a village, and that happened in 2016. I mean, there are cases almost every day in India of some kind of attack against the lower caste, against Dalits. They're called Dalits. So on the one hand, India is incredibly modern. It's technologically advanced. It has managed to curb COVID and manage COVID better than anything our country has done. Even though they have like 1.3 billion people in their country, the state of Kerala itself has 35 million people, has so far had only 18 deaths which is, you know, just goes to show that they are incredibly advanced in their thinking and in understanding of science. 
But at the same time, you know, the rest of India has these attacks and this violence against Dalits. And so there is that tension between modernity and tradition that continues to exist in that society. So that's what my essay is about, watching all these things and sort of trying to make these connections with my own experiences in the essay. Nangeli decides that she's not going to give in and she takes this really radical step and she uses her own fortitude to achieve that. She refused to be controlled and in that she owned her own story. That's the way we, all of us need to own our own stories and our own selves, sort of like by saying, I'm going to do what I have to do and I'm going to do it kindly and without hurting anyone else. During this time of sheltering in place, Mira has been learning to own her story in a new way. I've had a revelation during COVID. I've decided I'm going to publish my novel, which I've sat on for years because I've had all kinds of psychological issues about it. But now I've decided, you know, I didn't die, so I might as well publish my novel. I asked Mira if she'd tell me a little bit more about this novel that she'd been sitting on for years. It's a story that has a lot in common with the essay that she wrote for Fierce. The novel is set in Kerala during the 1950s when a communist revolution is happening. And it's told through the eyes of a young girl who's around 14 and she lives in the house of these upper caste people. It's told through her eyes watching this revolution happen as she sort of negotiates her, this kind of liminal space that she inhabits between being of a lower caste but living with the upper caste and that shifting power balance. It's complete, it's finished, and it's sitting there. But I had some huge psychological issues around the novel that I've not been able to work through. So then during these three months, I've been doing a lot of meditation, I've been doing a lot of work on myself, and I finally decided that, you know what, I am just going to go ahead and publish this novel. It's a crazy time to decide to publish it when the economy is crashed. But I'm going to send it out and see what happens. I told Mira that I was rooting for her in her novel. It is a crazy time to publish it. But then it's a crazy time for a lot of things. Like, say, starting a daily podcast during a global pandemic when you've got three kids at home and have just lost your family's source of income. The daily sanity Mira offers us today is that sometimes in these crazy times, crazy makes a lot of sense. For so much of life, we play it safe. But then there are seasons of being stripped down, of hitting rock bottom, of finally understanding that change is needed. Maybe today's the day that we put on our masks and protest, or finally send out that novel we've been sitting on, or look for a way to be an advocate to others who've been fighting injustice for a long time. Maybe it's a time to fight against injustice like Nangeli, Minus the lost body parts. A time to be inspired by women like Mira. To be defiant and brave and hopeful about what we can become. If you found today's episode meaningful and listen on iTunes, Stitcher, or any platform that allows you to rate and review, leaving a quick note about what you appreciate about the show moves us a little closer to being able to make this work sustainable. Not just now, but in the future. If you've been listening, then you may have noticed that we've made some changes at Shelter in Place. We've now got ways to support the show and sign up for our newsletter at shelterinplacepodcast.info. We've also been including some Easter eggs at the end of some of our episodes. Sometimes it's a personalized thank you to our supporters. 
sometimes it's a little something to make you laugh. We'll try to keep surprising you. If you'd like to hear your name in the credits, you can support us for as little as $5 a month at shelterinplacepodcast.info. And on that note, I'd like to thank a few of our newest supporters. Jody Bionowski, the miles I ran by your side when my kids were babies are precious to me. Those were hard years of parenting and life, but your constant encouragement and belief in me kept me going week after week. Your continued friendship and support is one of the best gifts that our sport has given to me. Thanks for showing me how to be fierce. Paul Baker, you will forever have my gratitude for spending an entire day helping us build this writing shed where we're now creating episodes of Shelter in Place every day. When I asked Nate what he appreciates most about you, he said that you're one of the most loyal people he's ever met, that you are a rare, truly creative person, as anyone will immediately understand when they see your work at cclampstudios.com. I'll include your site in my show notes for today so others can appreciate your work as much as we do. Mira Nair, you model the best way to be fierce. You have the wisdom to know when to be defiant and when to be gracious. It was such a delight to feature you in episode 92. I'm looking forward to reading that novel. Patty Westner, you once had a magnet on your fridge that said the hardest part of parenting is the first 40 years. What it didn't say is that you probably wouldn't just be parenting your own kids, but their friends. You were one of the very first people to support Shelter in Place, and your encouragement has lifted me up so many times over the years. Thank you for listening no matter how long I talked, for guiding me with your wise counsel, and for making me feel at home no matter how long it's been. As always, you can find show notes for today's episode as well as ways to support the show at shelterinplacepodcast.info. The Shelter in Place music was created by Chase Horseman at Reactor Productions. Tamara Kimsley is our associate producer. Nate Davis is our creative director. And Sarah Edgel is our design director. Until tomorrow, this is Shelter in Place. I'm Laura Joyce Davis.